the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus himself gives us specific instruction to the church as to how to deal with sin. It's what we have called in church history the process of church discipline. It begins with one-on-one addressing of sin, as we've seen over the past two weeks, just a general admonishment of sin, rebuking of sin. It doesn't involve the church. It doesn't involve pastors, elders, deacons. It's just Christian to Christian. But it goes through four different steps, and the final step is putting the individual out of the church should he or she not repent of that sin after multiple talking after much prayer after much discussion in between there is a lot going on but at the end if there is no change if there is no repenting turning back to god that individual that sinner must be put out of the church church discipline is a difficult thing after all we are more often than not talking about a friend a a brother a sister in Christ. But church discipline is necessary when you consider the purpose of it. When the defiling nature of sin and the glorious nature of God are compared and contrasted, we we can be thankful that the Lord has given us such a wonderful tool to purify and preserve His bride, the church. What's more, He has given us examples of how this is to be done. And this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we're going to begin a multi-week series called Discipline or Defilement. And that is very telling because, as we will see, if you do not discipline the sin properly, you are going to, not possibly, not risking, but you will allow the defilement or the continuation of the defilement of the church. And although we do not get the details of the whole process in 1 Corinthians 5, we are given a case study of church discipline that we can learn from. So would you turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5, and this series will cover a big portion of the chapter, if not all of it. But this morning we are in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, And have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though as I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord Jesus. This morning, I want to give you six components of a case study on discipline in the church. Six components of a case study on discipline in the church, and naturally, we will learn something from each component. You could say that it's six lessons from a case study on discipline in the church. The first components of this case study in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago that Paul is addressing and is talking about the concept of discipline in the church, the first component is the perverted relationship. The perverted relationship. Let me read for you again verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Paul begins by telling them not only has he heard, but it is widely known as is indicated by the Greek word that is translated for us, reported. It indicates that this is well-known knowledge, at least among other Christians around the world. Keep in mind, this is a big deal, not only because of the sin, uh, but the grossness of the sin and how it has spread the news is pretty significant considering there were no telephones or even modern mail system. There is, what he has heard, gross immorality in the church. The word immorality speaks of general sexual acts outside of marriage. It's the Greek word porneia, porneia, from which we get the obvious English word. In the Greek world, uh, this meant uh, specifically prostitution, but the word was adopted by Hellenistic Judaism to refer to all extramarital sexual sin. Now, the particular sin that Paul is addressing is incest that takes the form of someone who is in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, I want to clarify, not that it really makes it any better, but this would not be his biological mother, but his stepmother. And the reason we know this is because if you go to Leviticus 18, there are sins listed, and there are two terms that are clearly referring to two different people. There's the term mother, and there's the term father's wife. So we know that the term father's wife is not talking about his biological mother. So what we have is a Corinthian man who is part of the church at Corinth, He is sleeping with a woman that his father married after the father is no longer with the biological mother, either through divorce or death, we're not told. It is even possible that the father is no longer living. Doesn't matter, we don't know, still sin. What we do know is that this is so immoral that the Apostle Paul says that even unbelievers, Gentiles, do not condone such behavior. And to say this, to say that even the Gentiles do not engage in this kind of a moral relationship is really the height of scorn for a Christian. It would be the same today. If someone was committing, a Christian was committing a sin, and we said, Hollywood wouldn't even portray that. If we said, non-Christians think this is gross, that's pretty offensive. That is uh, quite the indictment on that Christian's behavior. And we understand by God's general grace that even unbelievers have a sense of morality. 
And so he points this out. And here you have the Corinthian church as a whole that is trying to win, or they should be trying to win, unbelievers to Christ, to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they are living more sinfully than those they are trying to win. They're living more sinfully than the Corinthian pagans around them, the idol worshipers, uh, the people who, because of their immoral behavior, there was a term coined, a phrase coined called to Corinthianize, which means to come to a level of immorality that is below even the average pagan. Now, Paul's not overstating the case here. He's not uh, being dramatic. This kind of union is in fact, or was in fact rather, forbidden by Roman law. So this wasn't just sin in God's eyes. This wasn't just sin according to God's Old Testament law. It was wrong in the eyes of the secular Roman government. And just to be clear, the word has in has his father's wife tells us very clearly that the relationship is sexual and they are living together. That's bad enough. But we can also deduce that this woman is not part of the church, probably not a Christian, which is explained by the fact that Paul is only addressing this man's sin and not the woman's sin. And so, in looking at our case study of discipline in the church, this is the sin. There is a perverted relationship going on. This is the particular issue that he is now addressing. Keep in mind that up to this point, through chapters 1 through 4, a quarter of the whole letter, we have seen him addressing other sins and confronting the Corinthians on this sin or these sins. It really comes down to pride, which he's going to address again here in this passage. But back to the incest. As wrong as it sounds, and perhaps it frankly doesn't sound as bad in our wicked day and age, right? Well, if mom's dead or divorced, then what, why not, right? He's no longer with this person. Or, and there's just so much wickedness in our day and age. I, I know that kind of bothers you, what we're talking about here, but I can easily see our world excusing this, justifying it, even showing us how it's a good thing. But regardless, it, it really doesn't matter how unconventional the sin is. Yes, we're looking at a gross relationship, a perverted sexual relationship, but I want to make mention that everything we are going to look at this morning and in the coming weeks and looking at church discipline applies to any and all unrepented sin. I want you to be careful. Don't think that church discipline or even admonishment or rebuke is only for gross sins like these. They are for every sin from incest with your stepmother to habitual lying or anger. And so that's a perverted relationship, but what we need to learn from is that any sin needs to be confronted, repented of, and ultimately can lead to church discipline. Well, let's move on and look at our second component of this case study on church discipline, the problematic response. The problematic response. 
We find this in the beginning of verse 2 where Paul says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. He is talking about the response of the Corinthians to this sin, and it is clearly very problematic. Because you see that they're not just ignoring it, they've actually become arrogant. And we've already seen Paul confront the Corinthians on their arrogance and their pride. Here, it's manifested in their response to this individual's sin. Now, we aren't told exactly how their arrogance plays into this. There's a few options we have. It could be that it was their pride in general that we have already seen that would make them feel so self-satisfied, so spiritually superior, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Jesus, that they don't see the need to confront sin. Hey, we're doing okay, we're doing great. It is also possible that their arrogance is actually stemming from this sin. That is, they see this sin as evidence of their misguided freedom in Christ and the wonderful grace that they have been gifted. We'll look at this later on in 1 Corinthians. They're doing this as they live, as we have seen, as they live and act like spiritual kings. They're living as if they are above both biblical and Gentile standards of morality. And so they're almost, uh, or they are being arrogant in this sin. Look what people in our church can do because we're so great and we're so spiritual that it really doesn't matter. We don't see this here, but I have seen people with such a misunderstanding of God's grace that they committed sins similar to this and said, I'm actually glorifying God through this because I am redeemed and everything I do is of the Spirit and I glorify God through everything. And just getting arrogant. And, and this individual that I w- I'm talk- referring to actually confronted the rest of us uh, at, our, at our Bible study, at my Bible study in college, and said, you're all wrong. You don't get it. You can sleep around. You can do all these things. And we glorify God because we are redeemed. And you can see a similar response here among the Corinthians. Either way, we see the danger of pride not only in how it affects us personally, but also how it is detrimental to the church as a whole. Their response is flat out wrong. It goes against the very reason God created the church, instituted fellowship, put us in each other's lives. In fact, it would be just as fitting to also call this point in our outline the perverted relationship because of their perverted view of this sin, their perverted view of this individual, and their perverted view of God and what he desires. But what would be the proper response if What we're looking at is a problematic response. What would be the proper response? Well, he says it right there in verse 2. They should be mourning. They should be mourning over this man's sin. I want to point out that this word is the same type of mourning or deep felt sadness that you would exhibit when your closest friend or relative dies. That's 
how serious sin is. That's how much we should love God and be passionate for His glory and see this, this, this part of the body of Christ, the part of the bride of Christ, this believer, this person who claims to want to glorify God and all He's doing, and you see this sin or even sin in our own lives, we should mourn, we should grieve. Not just because of the practical ramifications, not just because you're scared he's going to be kicked out of the church, but because of your passion for the glory of God. Mourning over sin, whether it's your sin or another person's sin, comes from a love for God and a passion for his glory. Can I be just honest with you as your pastor? If you felt uncomfortable during last week's sermon because you don't confront sin, then this is probably your problem. You don't confront sin because you don't truly mourn over sin. And you don't mourn over sin because you're not passionate for God's glory, at least not to the degree that you ought to and to the the degree that He deserves. And you're not passionate for God's glory because ultimately, whether you admit it or not, you think less of Him and more of yourself than you ought to. And this is why arrogance murders mourning over sin. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. What What are the two primary reasons people give for not confronting sin. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Can I rephrase that to help emphasize the point here? I don't feel comfortable doing that. This also includes excuses like, I don't know him well enough. It's all about comfort level, but it's about your comfort level. Another common excuse is, well, I don't think what he's doing is really that bad. The first is all about yourself and your comfort, not God and his pleasure or even the, the sinning Christian spirituality. The second makes you the standard of what is sin or not rather than God. And I think we would all agree that both are a form of arrogance. And when an entire church doesn't mourn over sin, especially sin going on in its midst, then that church is about to drive off the cliff to spiritual disaster. This is what Paul is warning the Corinthians about. And in the Old Testament, we have several examples of an entire group of people facing judgment for not dealing with one person's sin in that group. Let me put it this way. As a Christian, I think you would very easily and clearly say that your top priority, your primary concern is God's glory. But what happens when you tolerate sin and let it go unchecked in the church? Compare this to your number one goal is God's glory. When you let sin go unchecked, Christ is dishonored. His body, the church, is disgraced, and the devil gains a victory. All because of what? 
because I don't feel comfortable. You know, another excuse that we may be tempted to say when confronting sin, we kind of look at, at, at the church structure, uh, and especially uh, these days when we have just more established church and there's a lot of good literature out there of uh, how to have church. You know, you have nine marks doing stuff. You got Grace Community Church doing stuff. And so we say, well, you know, the small group leaders or the elders or the pastors, they need to handle this. And the excuse people give is, well, this is just, it's not for everyone. Confronting sin, it's not for everyone. No, it's not. It's just for Christians. It's just for Christians. So let's avoid the problematic response and deal with sin the proper way. And that leads us to our third component of this case study, the proper resolution. The proper resolution. Picking up in the middle of verse 2, up through the end of verse 3. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Had the Corinthian church truly mourned over this man's sin, they would have resolved the situation by putting him out of the church because clearly he's not repenting. In fact, as indicated by the ESV translation, some believe that this is actually an imperative, not so much a result of mourning, but that Paul is commanding them to remove this man from their midst. Now, whether or not this is a command here, we know that it is a command elsewhere, particularly in Matthew 18. Now, Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain how he has handled this situation from afar, but in his own mind. Although he is not with them physically, he is with them in spirit. Uh, there's nothing to over-spiritualize here. We use that term. I can't make it, but I'll be with you there in spirit. As such, he has already passed judgment on this man. Now, not judging in the sinful sense, but having passed a judgment, a verdict, a conclusion about the case, so to speak. And though the Corinthians have failed to respond rightly to this sin, both physically by not putting them out and spiritually in their view of the sin, Paul has passed a sentence in the church courtroom. And this incestuous man has been tried and condemned. And notice the contrast here of Paul's proper response and their improper response. He says, I, on my part, the Apostle Paul, whereas you, Corinthians, are arrogant. Now, the tense of the word judged, coupled with Paul's authority in the church, shows us that the judgment has been passed and the judgment stands. They may not want, may not want to do the right thing, but he will. And frankly, this isn't even an issue or necessitates pastoral or apostolic discernment. In other words, you don't need to have any sort of spiritual authority or special insight to see how bad this sin is and that the biblical consequences must 
be faced. And so, yes, he could say this and tell the Corinthians to do this because of his apostolic authority. But for us, we all know what sin is. It's in the scriptures. We know very clearly what sin is and what isn't sin. And so we have the spirit-induced ability to know what is sin and what isn't, what should be confronted and what shouldn't. What Paul is doing here and what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do This is the proper resolution. Not the best resolution, right? Because the best resolution would have entailed the Corinthians already addressing this issue and that Paul wouldn't have even had to write this in this letter or have even had heard about it. But it's proper in that he is doing now what God wants and fixing what the Corinthians have done, which is not what God wants, what the Corinthians have done. Now, Paul goes on to bring the Corinthians in with him in this regard, and this leads us to our fourth component of a case study on discipline in the church, the powerful resolve. The powerful resolve. Look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, although he has made a decision, he is still calling on the Corinthian church as a whole to assemble, to come together to deal with this sin. In other words, Paul must deal with this sin, but he also wants the church to agree with him and do what is right. He's not just kind of going to steamroll over them. He will if he needs to, but he's saying, you guys still need to do what is right. We need to be in agreement with this. In other words, in a word, what he's doing is shepherding. He's shepherding them. This is what I have done. This is what I'm going to do. And look, guys, you've got to get on the same page here. Understand what's happening here. Now, when he calls them to assemble, he also tells them that there is power in what he is calling the church to do. And there's two words here that tell us the two types of power or the two sources of power that they have. First is Christ, and the second is Christ. But more specifically to the grammar here, Christ and assembly. But the reason I say Christ is because it is still Christ's power given to them in that assembly. But Christ and assembly, let's look at this. He says in Jesus' name, it's how we end our prayers usually, and we see this in the scriptures, to do something or to say something in Jesus' name means you're doing it all about Jesus. It's by his authority. It's representing him. It's in fellowship with him. It's in accordance with his will. And he says, by his power. So in Jesus' name and by his power, they will do this when they assemble. Now, the power of Christ comes as they assemble together. What's the assembly? It's a, simply a reference to a a special meeting in which the church needs to come together and decide how to handle this man. And again, we see this in the Old Testament. There's precedent there where we have examples of groups assembling together in Israel to deal with sin. Sometimes the reason they assembled together was to mete out punishment in the form of stoning, right? Let's assemble because we need to stone this man or this woman. Now, Again, Paul says he will be with them in spirit, but they are to reach the same decision as a body and execute that decision on that man 
themselves. It's clearly stated in the scriptures that they have, as a church, the power to take drastic action against this sin. Again, in his name and by his power. Mean that their decision will be Christ's decision should they follow his will. As a local body of Christ, they have his authority to deal with sin. And this power has been explained and granted in Christ's teaching on church discipline. I mentioned it earlier, but we find that process or the steps in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. And then Jesus goes on to say, starting in the following verse, in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20, he says this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And here's the famous verse. And for whatever ways that you have used or misused this verse, remember it is in the context of church and discipline. Church discipline, but church. Verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is a confirmation that when there are a group of people, two or three within the church that decide upon church discipline, we have the authority and power of Jesus Christ. And that is the powerful resolve found in Christ and community in how they are to deal with this man. But when they assemble and with the power of Christ, what is it that they are to decide? Well, that's found in our fifth component from this case study, and that is the painful removal. The painful removal. Look at the beginning of verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, if it wasn't clear enough before how seriously we are to take sin, then this terminology surely should wake us up. Now, this is a more nuanced explanation of what it means to put someone out of the church. The word deliver that he uses here is a very strong word in the Greek. It is the judicial act of sentencing someone. It means to hand over, to deliver, to turn over for punishment. The judge delivering a convicted criminal to the warden. And it, when it comes to the two types of people that exist, biblically, we know that there are only two types of people. And it goes through gender. It, it, it goes over all ethnicities. We see that in the gospel and Paul's proclamations. There are really two types of people that exist in the world, Christians and non-Christians. The church and the world, listen carefully, those of Jesus and those of Satan. So what Paul means when he says he will deliver this individual to Satan, is not that he's going to somehow have Satan himself, the fallen angel, come and hand him over to the individual Satan, or that even as he kicks him out of the church, that somehow Satan would pinpoint on this particular individual and personally attack him. Why bother? 
right? Remember, Satan is not omniscient and he is not omnipresent like God. He cannot just torture everyone at the same time. But what this means is that Paul is going to deliver him to the realm of Satan, to put him back in the world outside of the edifying and caring environment of the local church where God is working. Now, Paul uses the same terminology in 1 Timothy chapter 1, speaking of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Let me read for you. 1 Timothy 1.20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So same idea there. It's not that he grabs their arm and only lets go when Satan himself has their arm. No, he's delivering them to the domain of darkness. Now, with that explanation, I don't want to trivialize or undermine what's happening here. He does say that this process is for the destruction of his flesh. This is a reference primarily to his fleshly nature, his sinful nature. In other words, by putting him how? Just that act, but also the great suffering he will experience outside of the church, outside of God's care, outside of the care of God's people, that he will hopefully turn from his sin. But understand too, the word flesh is the word flesh, and death is a very real possible outcome of God's discipline should this man not repent. We see this in the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, as well as some, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, as I mentioned every first Sunday of the month, as God disciplines in the form of physical death, some who take communion in an unworthy manner. Remember me telling you on the first Sunday how serious we are to take this? Well, the church, in church discipline, if we go to back to Matthew 18, again, we don't have uh, in, in Matthew 5 the clear following, at least not exemplified for us or described for us uh, in what's happening here, the four uh, points or the, the four movements of church discipline. We have the fourth one, but in that fourth one where someone is cut out of the church and no longer welcome in the church until they repent, this is something that we all must do for the sake of repentance, but also, of course, the purity of the bride of Christ, the universal church, and the local church. But there is an ultimate goal for all of this. There is an ultimate goal for putting someone out of the church. Yes, it's the purity of the church, as we'll see very clearly uh, next Sunday or the following uh, Sunday, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. A little leaven contaminates the whole. Again, he's going to be referring to this particular man and how his sin, though it is supposedly just with one other woman, is going to contaminate the whole church. And so there is the purity of the church that is in mind here. But there is an even bigger goal for this specific sinning individual 
in all of this. And when I say all of this, I'm talking about everything we've seen, the perverted relationship, the problematic response, the proper resolution, the powerful resolve, specifically the painful removal. And the goal of all of this is not just that removal. That's a means to an end. The goal is not just to put sin out of the church and hand over to Satan. Even that is a means to an end. The goal is in the end of verse 5 and our sixth component, the purposed result. The purposed result. Look at the end of verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a good reminder that Satan only can do what God in his sovereignty allows. Yes, they are enemies. Yes, they are at war. But the end of the war has been decided. In fact, every battle has already been decided who will win. And in the end, God will win. We know that. We know that there is a day where we will reside eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, where Satan and his followers will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. The end result, the, the, the end of the war has already been decided. And so when we see this and understand God's sovereignty even over Satan, it helps us even in this, and where Paul is saying the goal at this is that this person will eventually be in heaven. He will be saved. He will belong to Jesus Christ. And the, what I'm trying to say is sometimes we, we think, Oh, he belongs to Satan. That's it. Satan won this one. One, one battle won for Satan. That's not necessarily the case. And even as we or the Apostle Paul, which ultimately is God, hands over an individual who may be a true follower of him or even an unbeliever into the realm of Satan, it doesn't mean that somehow Satan shackles him and mystically keeps him forever. That is all God's decision and God's choice. And so I just want to mention that because I think we get a little too uh, mystical or Satanology or uh, Hollywood or Halloween about this. We have to stick to what Scripture says. But let's go back to the verse. Though his flesh be destroyed, he will be saved. This is the goal. And again, we don't know if this will happen for sure, but this is the goal. A better way of putting that, that his flesh be destroyed, though his flesh be destroyed, he will be saved, is because his flesh be destroyed, he will be saved. Now, day of the Lord here refers to final judgment. So what Paul is saying is hopefully in that final day, this man will be found to be in the Lamb's book of life. This is the ultimate goal of confrontation. Step one of church discipline. This is the ultimate goal of rebuke. This is the ultimate goal of admonishment, of church discipline, and even putting someone outside of the church. This flies in the face of tolerating the sin in love. Let's just love them. Let's just be gracious. No. Uh, that just creates a, a, a warm bath, nice and comfortable warm bath, the perfect temperature for those parasites to reproduce and flourish. Get them out of the church, protect God's bride, and put him in a place where he is no longer coddled, but he must face the consequences of his sin. So, 
The goal is repentance and turning to the love of God. Don't abuse what God has called us to do, which is to love each other. Remember, admonishment is one of the greatest ways you can love another brother or sister in Christ. And one of the best ways you can love God, love His church, and even love that individual is should they not repent to respond to them biblically and put them out of the church. By the way, the word biblically, anytime you do that, you can be sure you're doing things with love. Do it biblically, you're doing it with love. Well, what if I just do what the Bible says, but I, I really am harboring resentment? Well, then you're not doing it biblically. So, God's way is love. We know that. God is love. Yes, He is. We don't, we're almost hesitant to say that because the way churches and non-Christians have abused that, right? God is love, and so they tolerate sin. God is love, and so they actually sin. God is love, and so they pass sin into law. But we know biblically God's way is love, but love through His way and any means necessary to produce true repentance, even if that means handing Him over to the domain of Satan. Expulsion from the church is the last possible means that we have for this, but in this case, it must be done. I want to go back for a second to rebuke and even church discipline as a reflection of love. It is love for God, right, doing things His way, and it is a love for others. I have no doubt that you like and even respect people whom you don't want to confront. I know you like them because you don't want them to feel bad or you don't want to hurt your relationship, your friendship with them. Sometimes we'll even go as far as, well, I don't want to offend them and make them not talk to me more because then I can't speak into his life and help him repent. But that is so contradictory because the way you're doing that is by not speaking into his life about issues that would cause him to repent. So again, we like these people, we respect them, we appreciate their friendship, but ultimately, it's not love. Love for another is most deeply expressed by their, by our desire, rather, for their salvation, or if they are believers, for their spiritual growth. Desiring so deeply that you would do anything within the parameters of Scripture to get them saved or to get them to repent. And that's the ultimate goal and motivation for all of this. Uh, we're we're going to go uh, later in 1 Corinthians and talk about liberties. And people say, no, liberties, that's like talking about, you know, things like marijuana because it's legal. No. He specifically says eating and drinking. Yes, your beer, your wine. If it means not to cause another believer to stumble or be uh, some, a person that leads someone to Christ, yeah, don't ever buy alcohol again. Do whatever it takes 
it is love for God and love for others. So, again, for the unbeliever, their salvation. For the believer, a renewed and repaired relationship with God, which their unrepentant sin has tarnished. And again, you have to understand that, right? It's not just glorying in God's grace. Yes, does not grace abound all the more? Sure it does. Yes, it covers all of our sin. But that person doesn't have a thriving relationship with their God. And on the other end of the spectrum, God is not maximally glorified in that individual's life. And that's why we confront. That's why we rebuke. That's why we church discipline. Because, as I said last week, we need to be more concerned about that than anything else, even our friendship, our relationship with that person. You would do that in your family. Oh, uh, there's something about families where we love to do that. We love to be the bearer of bad news when it comes to family, right? But if you know of, a, uh, of one of your siblings or a cousin or an uncle or an aunt and your mom or dad just can't stand them and year after year they're, they're, they're not invited over for Thanksgiving dinner, right? And they, oh, well, this year, of course, because, you know, it's COVID and they don't want people over and then the day after Thanksgiving on Black Friday, they notice that there's pictures of all the family members wearing masks at the dinner table. Well, again, not invited. Wouldn't you do something to restore that relationship? Uh, especially if they've done something so much that they don't even realize it's bad anymore. You know, hey, you know, it's, maybe you didn't hear, but my mom's told you over and over that she's allergic to dogs and we really need you to wear fresh clothes or brush your clothes off that's covered in dog hair before you come over to our house and you'll get invited. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to do that with God? I know it's harder and, and more offensive than, maybe not for some people, hey, brush that dog hair off of your clothes, you dirty beast or whatever, right? Take a shower, please. But, you know, confronting sin can be difficult. And so we need to do that because it's ultimately that. Because why, why, would, you, why would you do that? Because he's fun, you know. Maybe his joy, jokes are annoying and he, and he always, uh, you know, takes all the dark meat or whatever. But it just doesn't feel right and get this when the family's not together. And it just doesn't feel right. When daddy doesn't get to sit down at least once a year with all of his kids, knowing that all of his kids love him and respect him, we would say something. And we need to say something in regards to the glory and the pleasure and the following of our Heavenly Father. Now, although this case study is unique in many ways, the principles and process should be the same in your life, in my life, in Grace Church of the Bay Area's life. Six components of a case study on discipline in the church, the perverted relationship, the sin, the problematic response, ignoring it or even getting arrogant, the proper resolution, 
the verdict, the powerful resolve. We have been granted the power to do this. The painful removal put him out of the church and the purpose result so that in the final day he will be saved. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who truly grieve and mourn over sin. Firstly, our own sin, that we might take the log out of our own eye and then confront our brother or sister on his speck in their eye. May we do so not because we want to look good in the church, not because we want to have a good testimony or a solid reputation, but for your honor, for your glory. Father, may our passion for you and our love for you and our love for others in the church and our love for those outside of the church overcome all of these proud excuses, selfish excuses, lazy excuses that we have to not confront sin. Father, I would ask you as someone who has been granted in your grace and your sovereignty a flock to shepherd, I would pray that you would grant us to be a local church, a people that don't devolve into a church and where the height of our conversations is fantasy football or COVID-19 or Trump versus Biden, but about how much we love and adore you which involves gently and graciously or firmly when necessary talking about others' sin to them that they might repent. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together as we close in song.